Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 54, A Troubled New Kingdom and Cantankerous Communes. Last time, we left the Norman Roger II, having finally been confirmed in his position as Duke of Puglia, Calabria and Sicily, after having stared down a papal army that wandered off after sitting for a while in the hot sun. We also hinted at the fact that he may now have been thinking of something more than being a duke. Indeed, there was no duke in Europe at the time whose power and wealth could rival that of Roger. But what about kings? Well, there were kings at the time in France, England, Scotland, Castile, Aragon, Navarre, Sweden, Denmark, and Hungary. Of these, only the first two, the kings of France and England, had more land than Roger. However, as far as wealth, prestige, and power were concerned, he had no rivals. The King's Club was a rather exclusive one. They weren't really looking for any new members. It wasn't going to be easy. First of all, some sort of historical precedent was necessary. Before the Normans, there had been the Muslims, and officially the island of Sicily had been governed from Baghdad, even though it had been de facto an independent emirate. But he wouldn't get very far claiming legitimacy from a Muslim emirate. Before the Muslims, Sicily had been a Byzantine thema, and before that a province of the Byzantine Empire, so no go there. He certainly didn't want to depend on Constantinople for his legitimacy. So, further back. All the way to the Romans, perhaps? No good. It had been a province of the Roman Empire. What about the Greek period? There you go. Magna Graecia, when Sicily had been an independent kingdom. It meant going back quite a bit, but... He had a precedent. Now that Roger had the precedent, the next thing he needed was the legitimacy that could only come from an important spiritual leader. And there was really no other choice than the Pope. Now, it had been rather hard to get Pope Honorius II even to recognize Roger as Duke, never mind a king. He would never go for it. Luckily for Roger, that was the time, around 1130, when Honorius chose to pop his clogs, to bite the dust, to kick the bucket. Roger's luck went further than that. We saw two episodes ago that at this point, the Roman Frangipani family elected Innocent II and the Pierleoni elected 
Anacletus as antipope. Most of the players involved on the international scene, the emperor and a good part of the communes, got on the side of Innocent as well as the Byzantine Empire, which left poor little Anacletus all alone and looking for friends. Looking south, he saw a big, smiley, burly Norman with loads of cash and power and a formidable army. A friend indeed, for this friend in need. All the Pope had to do was one teeny, weeny, minuscule favour. Make Roger a king. My sources differ on what happened first, whether Roger sought the Pope's approval or that of his vassals. But in that same year, 1130, he held a parliament in Salerno to seek the blessing of his vassals, who readily accepted. I'm not quite sure what the alternative to accepting would have been, but I'm sure it wouldn't have been pretty. On Christmas Day of 1130, Roger II Hauteville, son of Roger I and nephew of the great Robert Giscard, made his way through the streets of Palermo on a snowy white horse. He entered the cathedral of the city, I imagine after dismounting, and made his way to the altar. He was anointed by the papal representative and his most powerful and prominent vassal, Robert, Prince of Capua, placed a crown on his head. The kingdom of Sicily, including Puglia and Calabria as well as the island, was born. It would last until the Congress of Vienna in 1815. In the span of just three generations, the Hauteville family had gone from a relatively poor Norman knight to a king. This meteoric rise was a very dangerous precedent for the rulers of Europe. Roger's attempt to consolidate his new kingdom was going to be an uphill battle. It did not help much that he was rather undiplomatic about how he went about it. He did not try to tread the complicated diplomatic line with his vassals, but insisted on placing family members in key positions. Soon enough, it was rebellion. The first, as always, as it had been under Robert Giscard, was Puglia, with Tancred of Conversano and Grimoaldo of Bari kicking things off. The rebellion was crushed mercilessly. Then it was Calabria's turn to rebel. This time it hit Roger hard, because among the rebels were his brother-in-law, Rainulf of Alife, and his greatest vassal, the man who had placed the royal crown on Roger's head, Robert, Prince of Capua. Puglia, in particular, was an unhealed wound that would see Roger lose his three eldest sons. The first, Roger, Duke of Puglia, who would have become Roger III. The second, Tancred, Duke of Bari. And the third, Alonso, Prince of Capua and Duke of Naples. The dangers for the new kingdom didn't all come from internal sources. 
We saw last episode how Emperor Lothar had been convinced by the Duke of Bavaria to organize an expedition against the Normans. Although, at the end, things ended up exactly as they had started with no definitive consequences. The imperial forces were able to take all of Puglia, for a time. However, the key to the kingdom was not Puglia, the weak underbelly, but Sicily itself. Indeed, it was enough for Roger to pull his troops back to the island and let the imperial troops deal with the bickering nobles and disagree with the Pope about who actually owned Puglia, and then, when they had left, Roger simply had to waltz back in. Had the imperial expedition decided to aim straight for the heart of the kingdom, Sicily, things could have been very different, and the kingdom, the newborn kingdom, could have been nipped in the bud. We saw that the Emperor Lothar died in 1137 on his way back to Germany, after his trip. Shortly after that, Roger's Pope Anacletus also died, leaving Innocent II as the only now fully legitimate Pope. Roger was quite happy to recognise him at this point and let bygones be bygones. But Innocent was having none of it, and he actually excommunicated Roger. This only really had the effect of annoying the new king, since the whole of the church in his new kingdom was stuffed with men who were loyal to him. He had managed, in short, to set up a sort of Caesaropapism, a system in which the spiritual power is subordinate to the secular power. Subsequent talks between the king and the pope broke down due to Roger's categorical refusal to allow the rebellious Robert, Prince of Capua, to be reinstated in his position. Once again, we see the king's lack of diplomacy getting in the way of setting a legitimacy for his new kingdom. Things inevitably became violent and resulted in the Battle of Galluccio on the 22nd of July, 1139. At first, it seemed that things could go well for the Pope for once. He actually had Roger under siege in the castle of Galluccio. However, the Pope fell into a trap laid by Roger's son, Roger, who was obviously still alive at the time. The Pope was captured and taken before King Roger. The King was pretty good at doing the whole groveling and asking for forgiveness things, and was indeed forgiven. But it was clear that, with the Pope as his, shall we say, guest, he was going to get what he wanted. Indeed, in the Treaty of Mignano, Innocent II finally confirmed Roger's new kingdom. The fact that the Pope had accepted under duress was clear when four years later, in 1143, he refused to recognise the treaty, and it took the sight of an angry Norman army marching up to his doorstep to get him to change his mind again. So, the Kingdom of Sicily, who would last for centuries, got off to a rather rocky start. Things would not be smoothed over until the son of Roger, William I, 
and Pope Hadrian IV signed the Treaty of Benevento, and by that time, the Norman part of the story of the Kingdom of Sicily was almost over. Now, we've gone back to kings and emperors again, but what were our communes doing? Were they taking advantage of the emperor being distracted down in southern Italy to usher in an age of peace and collaboration between cities that were a cradle of nascent democracy? Did the wolves go skipping hand in hand with the lambs and the unicorns to pick lovely flowers at the end of the rainbow? Well, no. In the 1120s and 1130s, the prisons of Pisa, for example, were full of prisoners of war from Lucca. The prisons of Lucca were full of prisoners from Pisa. Pisa was also battling out with Genova and Venice, which ended up losing Pisa their fleet, not good for a maritime republic. The commune of Modena was at war with Bologna over the possession of the Rino Valley. Verona was fighting Vicenza and Padova was fighting Venice, who in turn was also fighting Ravenna. All fun and games. There was also Siena, who sent an army to try and conquer part of the Contado around Florence and saw their army annihilated by the Florentines. Now, you may be wondering what a Contado is. Basically, the Contado was the countryside around a city, which was very important for the sustenance of said city, because there was very little room for growing crops inside the city walls, except for small vegetable patches. We have seen that the cities were full of houses, workshops and public buildings. Therefore, it was important to have control over as much land as possible outside the city that could grow enough food to feed its citizens. In the surrounding countryside, you could find all kinds of different forms of organization going on. There would be small villages that were organized a bit like mini-communes. There could be large, productive and powerful monasteries. And there could be a local country noble with his castle and surrounding village. Said noble could be with the city, against the city, or even involved in the administration of the city, popping in and out. There is no single model of organization that could be applied to all communes and even to the same commune over time. To simplify, we could say that we had city communes dotting the landscape and growing, relying on the surrounding contado for sustenance, and inevitably rubbing elbows and soon after swords with the surrounding communes. So, although I can't expect you to remember who was fighting whom at any given time, I certainly don't, you can be pretty sure that two communes in close proximity were either fighting or one lesser powerful forced into the alliance with the more powerful and perhaps in time even absorbed by it. As things rumbled along, the organization of these communes became more complex and therefore needed suitable laws to regulate them. Lombard law, which had been in use for centuries now, was no longer fitting the bill. 
So it was in this period, actually before, in the 11th century, that Roman law was rediscovered and expanded to cover new issues. Who was to be taxed? Who could levy those taxes? Who could come and live in the communes? Who could leave? What role would the trade corporations have? Who was to be considered a citizen of the commune? To cover the new issues, a rich legal trade started up, with lawyers and notaries becoming more common and influential. Administration also became more complex. At the very beginning, new proposals would simply be read out to the assembled people of the Arengo, in front of the cathedral usually, and things such as nominations of new consuls, declarations of war, and such were passed with a request of a sick, so it is, or a fiat, so be it, yelled from the crowd. In time, this was no longer possible and required more limited forms of assembly. In all of this talk of communal independence and warring cities, we haven't mentioned the city, the eternal city, Caput Mundi, the capital of the world, Rome. What did they make of all this commune business? Were they happy to let the Pope rule over them? and let the other cities get on with this new-fangled modern ways? Not at all. The Romans, the citizens of the city of Rome, saw what was going on and they wanted in. Obviously, being Roman, they would have their own way of going about it. But we'll see what they did next time. As always, thank you very much for listening. Thanks in particular to my Patreon supporters, the Anita and Giuseppe Garibaldi level, Ed, Jeff, Joshua and Sean, the Matilda Di Canossa and Giuseppe Mazzini, Benjamin, Maddie, Roberta, Scott and YR, the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Ben, Silane, Chris, Dean, Ignacio, Jay, Caitlin, Kevin, Shelby, Stephen and Vincent, and the tippy-top Maria Montessori, and Dante Alighieri level, Sen and Paolo, and welcome, welcome aboard to the family, to our new supporter, Mattia. Thank you very much, Mattia. Now, we started off a while back announcing that we'd reached 21 patrons, but obviously, although 21 is my favorite number, I am not in the least bit offended that we're now at 23. I'm very, very pleased. I think it could be a cool objective, since I am now 42, and 42 is double 21, we could set the objective of reaching 42 patrons before my 43rd birthday in April of next year. Let's try and do that, shall we? Thanks to all of you for listening. Remember, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can click through to our social media, consult timelines, maps, and lists of rulers to help navigate our country's complicated history. Remember to get in touch if you're interested in the Ravenna trip, if you're listening before the 24th of August 2019, in which we will be joining the Storia d'Italia podcast for a lovely day trip in Ravenna. So if you're in the area in that period, please do get in touch. Thanks again, and until next time, arrivederci. Thank you.
Ah, your holiness. Welcome to my humble castle. Mm. I just want to say how really, really sorry I am for our recent misunderstandings. Please, please forgive the penitent Christian. Well, I suppose. I mean, I'm sorry that I'm so awesome and you're not much better than a little child. Okay, I get it. Let's go on. But I am really sorry that you're such a giant wimp. I'm sure it's not your fault. Okay, okay. Let's just get on with the pardoning so you can let me go, eh? Well, there's just one little thing. What now? You just need to confirm me as a king. What? You must have gone mad. Confirm you as king? You're, you're lucky to be a duke. Oh, oh, well, I see. Let me just take out my big sword. I'll put it here, just for decoration, you know. Now, do you mind confirming me as king? Yes, sir. Sentire Media Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.